0: We use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah. Welcome to the Evidence for Faith radio show. It's a beautiful, snowy day here in Ocean City, New Jersey. And you may be listening to us on Life Radio 1020 AM, WIBG, which covers most of southern New Jersey. Or you might be listening to us live, streaming from WIBG.com, or even iPhone and iPod through the Radiolicious app. Or you could be listening to this by podcast through iTunes or the EvidenceForFaith.com website. Welcome. I'm your host, Keith Kendricks. Dr. Mike Larrakis is taking a sabbatical for a little while, so he'll be off this month due to his busy schedule as a physician. I'm sure many of you know that he is a physician, and almost every physician has an incredibly busy schedule, so please give him your attention at prayer time. Co-hosting today is author and apologist Kirk Hastings. Kirk, welcome back again to the show. Hi, Keith. Good Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you here. On the Evidence for Faith radio show, we teach you about how you can know that Christianity is true. That is the purpose of our show, and we'll be covering some of those things today. Christianity has been and continues to be the most positive force for good and human flourishing that the world has ever seen. Jesus Christ has the power to bring the world together as brothers and sisters to live in peace. And when you live the Christian lifestyle and promote the values of Christianity, you help to make the world a better place. So Kirk and I are here to share the evidence and the arguments that Christianity is true. And we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church. So we'll be talking today about some of the new discoveries in the world of science that Kirk and I have been looking at. These things point to the truth of Christianity. These were all discoveries made last year, since it's the new year. We're looking at just things that have come across in the world of science in the year 2010. But before we get into that, there is an important news item. I'm sure most everybody listening to this will be well aware of the... uh, shooting of the Arizona uh, moderate representative Gabriel Giffords and the killing of six other people by an insane mass murderer who I do not care to give the dignity of his name Hmm. on the show. But uh, that was a real tragedy. Uh, Federal Judge John Roll was killed, a nine-year-old girl was killed, and thirteen other people were injured. So, why is this news? Well, a lot of times on this show we try to bring out to you one that uh, science is often corrupted by political ideology, and sometimes journalism is too, and this is a good example of how journalism gets it wrong, and we have to be careful. You can't just listen to what people say. You've got to know who's saying it and what their biases are if you want to discover the truth. So one of the things that's happened in regards to this shooting is that New York Times columnist Paul Krugman knew just whose fault it was. Was it the insane mass murderer's fault? No. It was Sarah Palin's fault, Rush Limbaugh's fault, Glenn Beck's fault. (laughs) Because they incite violence, right?
1: Excuse me while I stifle some laughter here.
0: Yep. Here's what he said. You may know that Republicans will yell about the evils of partisanship whenever anyone tries to make a connection between the rhetoric of Beck, Limbaugh, etc. and the violence I fear we're going to see in the months and years ahead. Okay. So he's acknowledging that people are going to criticize him for what he's about to say. Right? Republicans will yell about Good call. the— call. Ev- yeah. Exactly. But violent acts are what happen when you create a climate of hate. Well, imagine that. And what does he think he's doing? Uh, he continues, And it's long past time for the GOP's leaders to take a stand against the hate mongers. Who's the hater? No,
1: this this guy that shot these people, they have, from what I've read so far, they have no evidence that he was either A, a tea partier, be a Republican, see a conservative, be a Christian. so how does this guy make this leap that all of a sudden it's the right wing agenda's fault for this?
0: Where's uh, the connection? Yeah, good question. Uh, the connection is that he doesn't he, anything that happens bad must be the fault of the people he disagrees with. That's about it yeah that that's it. He doesn't mention that this woman. Uh, now he's talking about Sarah Palin back in Limbaugh because, of course, there was a recent election and this woman was, you know, she was somebody that they wanted to elect someone else for. So she right. was quote unquote targeted.
1: There was a Tea Party candidate running, running against, against, against her, who, and of course they wanted the Tea Party person to win. Right. But does that mean that they wanted somebody to shoot the other candidate? Not I mean, at come all. Come on.
0: Right. Exactly. And. He doesn't mention this New York Times columnist doesn't mention that the leftists also had targeted her for elimination. They wanted someone else. They wanted somebody more left than oh, her. Really, I hadn't heard that. To run for her. office, yes, they had. They had gotten. They wanted somebody to run against her in the primaries, and they used the words target and bullseye in relationship to to her election in the primaries. So.
1: So if this argument works for the right wing, it works for the left wing, too, then. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Let me see. I've got another quote here. It says, uh, oh, this is then from CBS, also kind of continued this with where they said, quote, Critics of Sarah Palin have already drawn a link between the shooting and the fact that the former Alaska governor puts Giffords on a, quote, target list of lawmakers Palin wanted to see unseated in the midterm elections. So CBS ran with this, reported all kinds of false accusations, as if citing posts from Facebook page and random bloggers didn't bolster the uh, one-sided findings. CBS then added some accusatory comments from the congresswoman's father and from Jane Fonda, like their, the father and Jane Fonda knew anything about who the shooter was. Right. Right. So, That's really irresponsible,
1: though, to use a tragedy like this to further a political agenda, which is right. what they're doing and what they often complain about they say the right wing does. And yet that's exactly what they're doing here right. with no proof, no evidence right. that there's any connection here. They're accusing these people of you know, Sarah Palin had something to do with this? Give me a break.
0: And and the only evidence about his political views that we know of so far come from his uh, website, where it talks about his favorite uh, books being uh, Mein Kampf and Communist Manifesto, and he talks about his belief that God doesn't exist. So, but again, that's not, you can't Use that against atheism either. For one thing, it's only one person. Right. So it'd be like saying, "Well, my grandfather he took Lasix and he died, so Lasix must have killed him." <laughs> right. You know, you can't say that. It's only one person. Right. But if you know, 30 percent or 50 percent of people uh, die an hour after taking uh, Lasix, then. You know, of course. Okay, there may be, be a be, problem here. May be a problem, yeah. And I just mentioned that randomly. Don't get scared if you take Lasix. <laughs> Lasix is a perfectly good drug. So, uh, but besides that, you shouldn't do that. Even if this were just one person. But besides that, when you listen to when you listen to some of the things he said and wrote, you distinctly get the idea the guy was completely nuts. He can't even finish a coherent sentence. Right. So he was crazy. Regardless of what side he was on, he was just crazy. And I think it's really an irresponsible for news organizations to jump on their political bandwagon and use that as fodder. Kind of,
1: yeah, political causes involved in this, which had nothing to do with it, just to make their political points. Exactly right. And exactly right. unfortunately, so, um, it, it's just a shame that, that uh, that's really a low thing to do. And on the one hand, they're complaining about how much incivility and hate and whatever there is in politics today, and then they turn right around and they, they say this kind of stuff, trying to incite hatred against conservatives and Christians and whatever. Right. So, right. you know, they're, they're undermining their own argument with this stuff.
0: Right. It's a, it's a hypocrisy that they apparently don't recognize.
1: Yeah, well, I so. wish we could vote all the uh, news anchors on TV out, <laughs> like we can the
0: politicians. <laughs> there you go. Let's get a whole new crop here. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> well, uh, still on the political uh, side of things then, since we do talk about how Christianity influences the world and through people and through government, there is this book that I've been hearing about for a long time, and it's on my wish list to get and read. It's called The 5,000 Year Leap. Have you heard of that book, The 5,000 Year Leap? No, I haven't. Well, I've got a little review of it, and uh, it's very interesting. It apparently is an analysis of the works of the Founding Fathers. So it says that over 150 volumes of the Founding Fathers' writings uh, were used to collect these principles of liberty, So they have 28 principles of liberty, and I just thought that I would mention a few of them that are particularly cogent to the Christian worldview. Uh, So number four is that without religion, the government of a free people cannot be maintained. Hmm. Okay? By religion, of course, the Founding Fathers typically meant Christianity. That was basically all there was back then and what they were used to. So without religion, the government of a free people cannot be maintained. And why was that? They saw the society like a the three legs of a stool. So society is the stool, and there are three legs that support it. One is free market economics and prosperity. One is liberty from the government, liberty. Mm-hmm. And the third stool was religion. And the reason that... Mm-hmm religion was necessary was to provide moral values for individuals and self-control. Because without... Moral restraint. Moral restraint. And that's what they meant by Mm self-government. You know, without self-control, too many people resort to violence and in order to control violence you have to have more and more government which oppresses everyone. Right. We're seeing that happening today. Yes, we're we seeing are.
1: seeing more and more restrictive laws being passed to control people's because behavior. Because of the
0: abuses of other people, and those abuses in the past would have been self-controlled. They would have maintained right. because they would have felt it was morally wrong, and the reason they felt it was morally wrong because they were taught it by their religion. Right. So, so that's the uh, three-legged stool of it's not just liberty and prosperity, it's liberty, prosperity, and religion. Mm-hmm. Okay, principle number five, all things were created by God, therefore upon him all mankind are equally dependent, and to him they are equally responsible. Okay, so this is a principle mm-hmm. that you would then use to build laws and to build a society. Right. And uh, you can see how that would make a big difference if you believe that or you don't believe it. Right. Then number six is all men are created equal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's right in the founding documents. A
1: radical idea that Christianity brought into the world.
0: Exactly right. Uh, Number eight is that men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Heard that before? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Straight from the founding fathers. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Indeed. And number nine, to protect man's rights, God has revealed certain principles of divine law. Okay, so did the founding fathers believe in natural law, the idea that you can look at human nature and by careful thought and philosophical thinking figure out some things that are right and other things that are wrong, such as the right to self-defense, the right to property, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things? Yes, they did. They believed very much in natural law and that you can build a system of law based on just... Rational thought, logic, and what we know about human nature. Right. But they also believed that that was not enough. You get so far in your building of society, but you can build an even better society if you recognize that God has also revealed additional laws, moral laws that are called divine law. So, and that comes from Scripture. That's where we get, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou
1: shalt not lie, etc., etc.
0: Yes. Well, you can get from natural law, you can get thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Uh, lying, I'm not sure if you can get that. You might need divine law for that.
1: I'm so. not even sure about the first two, though. Some people justify them by saying, well, you know— in order for me to get what I wanted, I had to kill this guy, or I had to steal this bread because I was starving, you know, they, they can still turn that around to justify breaking well, but those. Well, but
0: then they're not using natural law. It's, it's true, they can justify their own bad behavior. Anybody does that. Right. But natural law, one of the first uh, most obvious points is a survival, the right to survive, the right to be able to defend yourself. Right. which implies therefore no one has a right to try to kill you if you can if you have a right to to life to defend yourself then then that automatically
1: then the other guy has it too
0: <laughs> the other guy has it too right but that means he can't take away your right your right to life so he can't kill you so then would be by natural law would be morally wrong to kill so okay. um I so you and that. you can see how they build up, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of good philosophical work in the in the realm of ethics uh in the field of natural law and a lot of it was done back during this time. And let's see the final one, the god-given right to govern is vested in the sovereign authority of the whole people. So again, you'd be missing without Christianity, you would be missing these portions of the principles of liberty and you wouldn't be able to build a nation like the United States Hmm. so uh, that's the book the 5,000 year leap which uh, is definitely on my list of things to read well if you're just joining us you are listening to Evidence for Faith I'm Keith Kendricks and I'm Kirk Hastings a uh, little bit more political news, and then I think we'll try to get into some of the topics of the day, is there will be a Tea Party meeting in Hamilton. Since I live in Hamilton, I thought I'd mention this. February 16th, which is a Wednesday, at the library, Hamilton Library. So would love to have you out there. I'll be there and love to meet some people who are listeners. So join us for a Tea Party meeting, February 16th, Hamilton Library. Do they
1: actually serve any tea at these tea party meetings?
0: Oh, what a great idea. (laughs) I think there should be. I think there should be. All right. I try to do a quote of the day, and here's a quote of the day. This is from thinkchristianly.org, per usual. And it has to do with the naturalistic... Uh, view of evolution, trying to explain everything through naturalism, that physical things, properties, and energy are all that there is in the universe. There are no souls, there are no angels, gods, uh, anything like them. And here's a quote from Paul Churchland. So this is explaining the view of naturalism. He says, the important point about the standard evolutionary story is that the human species and all of its features are the wholly physical outcome of a purely physical process. This is the correct account of our origins, that there seems neither need nor room to fit any non-physical substances or properties into our theoretical account of ourselves. We are creatures of matter. And we should learn to live with that fact. That's from Paul Churchland. Now, the problem with that is that if that's true, then there's a bunch of things that just don't fit into that explanation of the world. There's these, what you might call, recalcitrant facts that can't be explained away. They remain despite your explanation that all things are merely physical Mm -hmm. one of them is consciousness second is libertarian freedom free will Mm -hmm. third rationality how can you be rational if you're simply driven by chemicals Mm -hmm. fourth unified selves are you the same person that you were when you were six years old or are you different are you a unified self or are you not well, according to materialism, you're not. In fact, there's probably not a single molecule that's the same in your body as, you were, as there was when you were six years old. Hmm. Because so they, you're not
1: the same person. That's right. You're not
0: unified. <laughs> you were not you when you were six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, lastly, intrinsic value and rights, and gets into the moral issue. So their thesis that everything must be explainable by materialism just doesn't work out. You've got too many things that are then unexplained. So we have a counter-quote from J.P. Moreland about naturalism. He is a philosopher. He says, For the naturalist, there is in principle no scientific explanation as to how evolution, a strictly physical process operating on physical materials, could give rise to something utterly non-physical. How can unconscious, purposeless, mindless particles give rise to the unified, immaterial selves with internal mental states by simply rearranging according to strict physical laws. The naturalist simply has no answer to this question. By contrast, the Christian theist has an excellent answer as to how mind could arise in the course of events that constitute the history of the universe. For the Christian, personhood, and in fact, a specific person, is more fundamental to reality than matter. So it is no problem to conceive of a personal God creating finite personal selves by an act of his will, but no amount of study of matter will make it at all conceivable that physical stuff all by itself could give rise to mind. So again, that's from J.P. Moreland. That's our quote of the day.
1: Isn't it interesting that they... Think that their very, the very ability to think that they're using to come up with this stuff, according to what they're saying, they shouldn't be able to think this stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's a. <laughs> it's uh, kind as, of self-contradictory, isn't it? It is. It's what Alvin Con- uh, Plantinga calls a defeater. So. Okay. It defeats itself. Right. It's self-defeating. Yes, it
1: is. If you go far enough with this, then you're you have to throw all your thoughts out the window, so nothing you say matters. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> or anything you think doesn't exactly matter. Exactly
0: right. I think I'm, I'll give you an example. One one example of something that is not physical nor is it energy. So that will be, if I can show you that such a thing exists, wouldn't that be proof that there is more to this universe than, than physical matter and energy? I would think so. Okay. Here Here's a description then. If I were to write you a letter, and then fax it to your home, mm-hmm. okay? What did you receive in the fax? Did you receive physical matter? Mm-hmm. A piece of paper with but ink it. But the paper on. was already there. Right. The paper was already in your house. I didn't send it. And the ink was already in the machine. Right. I didn't send you ink. No. I didn't send you paper. Right. Did I send you energy? No. No, I didn't send you energy. You sent me
1: information. I have an entire chapter uh, yes, in I my did. book, if I can put a little plug in here, <laughs> on information That's versus right. matter and energy. That's right. Information is a totally different thing from either matter or energy, and it's not physical. Correct.
0: Correct. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So another, another example would be, uh, imagine two robots. One robot is busy bolting the door onto a new car. Mm -hmm. The other robot is exactly the same, except that it's somebody forgot to load the software in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what's different about those two robots physically? One has software and one doesn't? No, physically, (laughs) as far as matter. Not really anything. Nothing. No. How about energy-wise? Any energy difference? If they're both plugged in, nope. They right. both have energy. Yet but one, one's not using it. One's building a car. Right. And the other's not. Right. Because it's missing something that is not physical. It's missing the not.
1: program to tell it what to do. Exactly right.
0: Exactly right. So uh, the naturalist, it's easy to show you that the naturalist naturalists are fal- are, is false, that there is more to this universe than just physical and or energy. I agree completely. (laughs) All right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And let's get into what kind of breakthroughs there were in 2010, scientific breakthroughs that show that the Christian worldview is more likely to be true. So let's take a look at that, and I guess we will start. We've got a bunch here, but I think— Can we do this
1: in a half an hour? <laughs> uh,
0: we're going to try. We'll, we'll try. We'll be brief on some of these things and, and as in-depth as we need to so people can follow along. So let's look in the realm of zoology. Last year—I don't know if you knew this. Did you know that last year was the 100th anniversary of the first published fruit fly genetic study? I just found that out. Yeah. So for a 100 years, people have been working with fruit flies trying to see if evolution were true. Right. If they could mutate fruit flies and have them change into something more advanced right. than a fruit fly. Now, the reason they do this is because the lifespan of fruit flies is very short. So they can you can study a lot of uh, generations mm-hmm. you know, um, and... So, this seems like a quick way. And if you speed things up by exposing the fruit flies to radiation, get more mutations, then supposedly you should be able to prove that evolution is true. This sounds like an
1: interesting basis for a monster movie. They could uh, create yeah. a gigantic <laughs> fruit fly that uh, would eat cities. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't that make a great movie?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and it would have been really interesting if they'd have been able to do something like that. You might, although I don't know, if it's just a fruit fly, but it's only bigger, I wonder if you could say that that's better. I don't know. Mm. Hard to say. So, regardless of that, they couldn't even do that, though. They couldn't even get, couldn't,
1: couldn't create a monster out of it. No, nope, huh?
0: couldn't get. Oh, yes, Couldn't create a monster, but not a bigger, not even a big giant fruit fly. Not, not even a fruit fly the size of a cow. No, oh. not even a fruit Shoot. fly <laughs> that say la, lived twice as long. How about that? Would that no. be an improvement? Yeah, I that would be think an so. improvement. You would sure. think that something as easy as that would be possible with all the experiments they did. But, in fact, in a century of mutations and manipulations, the fruit fly has remained exactly a fruit fly in its fruit fly kind. So, And we've gotten stuck with a bunch of
1: fruit flies with missing legs and wings and all kinds of other abnormalities. That's about all that
0: they've—yeah, four, four wings, two of which don't work. That's about all that they've been able to produce, blind fruit fr- flies and things like that. There's one famous one that occurred that— The results were released in 1980. Uh, This was an experiment that lasted for nearly 20 years, and it was designed specifically to detect fruit fly evolution. They used 600 generations of fruit flies, and they... Oh, you know what? I'm getting uh, my notes here are written together, so I don't want to confuse people. Um, The 1980 experiment I'll talk about in a minute. This one actually just was published this last year, 2010. Okay, so that's a 20-year-long study, 600 generations of fruit flies. And what they did was they selected out the fast-developing individuals and separated them from slow growers, okay? So instead of having natural selection where you kind of randomly, you know, you might get the better ones— Mm -hmm. And selected. This was artificial selection. This was a much more efficient method. This is
1: intelligently directed evolution, in a sense. Correct.
0: Exactly right. And what happened at the end of that? Well, the two groups, when they were finally finally allowed to interbreed, their offspring showed no permanent change at all. They immediately reverted back to the wild type, which is, we've discussed this in the past on previous shows, this is exactly what one expects to occur. So here's a quote from an evolutionary biologist made in 1977. This is from biologist Pierre P. Grasse. And he said, quote, The fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, the favorite pet insect of the geneticists, whose geographical, biotopical, urban, and rural genotypes are now known inside out, seems not to have changed since the remotest times. That is uh, been proven by this latest study in 2010. But let me now go back to that one that was done in 1980 that I referred to. That one was to see if evolutionary biologists could document evolution in action. And they obviously felt this would vindicate evolution if they could do that. So what they did was purposely mutated every core gene involved in fruit fly development. Okay? So mm-hmm. a, every core gene that had to do with the development of fruit fly, they specifically and painstakingly tried to mutate that gene to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, these scientists won the Nobel Prize for this work in 1995, and their research was published in, in Nature. But the, the experiments proved that the mutation of any of these core developmental genes that are essential for the fruit fly to develop only resulted in the death or in deformed fruit flies. So no... They didn't come up with any improved fruit fly out of this. Not at all.
1: So I find that interesting that after 100 years of intelligently directed efforts at trying to cause evolution to happen, nothing happened. Right. So why are evolutionists so eager to believe that random, unintelligent, undirected evolution was able to do what these intelligently directed scientists couldn't do.
0: Exactly right.
1: Exactly right. Hmm.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that's also interesting is that that 2010 study that I mentioned, the researchers offered, they suggested an alternative solution for what what they saw in their 600 generations. They suggested that the natural selection could be acting on already existing variations. So they were able to create a fruit fly that developed faster, but it wouldn't stick around. It wouldn't last. It wasn't what they call fixed. And so right. therefore it couldn't help the uh, genome, the the gene pool to advance. Right. So they suggested that maybe there are different variations within the genome that allow the fruit fly to develop faster. And that's exactly the thesis that Dr. Mike and I have mentioned on this show in past shows where we've talked about uh, what evolution is happening. What evolution is happening is the use of genetic information that's already there, hidden in the genome, and is activated, turned on or turned off at different times. So you can find that. There's one podcast that we have called How Life Works, another podcast on Variation-inducing genetic elements. So,
1: so you're, what you're really talking about here is uh, if we can use the example of the finches on Galapagos Island, the way some of them developed different size beaks, um, concerning you know the different times of the year or the weather or whether it was a wet year or a dry year or whatever. That's right. So they already they all already had yes the genes in them for both large beaks and small ones, and they just simply went back and forth from one to the other as they needed. But the inherent genetic ability to do that was already there. Correct. It's not something that just appeared all of a sudden and, bang, they have a bigger beak.
0: That's right. And so it was merely a matter of turning on genes and turning off genes. Right. And it was actually engineered and designed to do that. Right. So the In other words, a
1: a certain amount of adaptability within a species is
0: already there. Exactly right. Right. And it it might even be that it's random in the sense that the genetic information turns on or off randomly, because all it knows is that all the, the genetic information knows is that there's stress in the environment. Right so signals come to the reproductive cells that there's stress in the environment. We got to change things, right. So it randomly, you know, quote unquote, randomly, changes things and you get some uh, finches with small beaks and some with large beaks because of the conditions of the time. the stress that the species is under the one with the large beaks survives. and that's right. how. And that is a good example of natural selection, but it's a controlled natural selection. Isn't
1: that really the same thing, if you could apply it to human beings, why, you know, like two parents with blonde hair might have a kid with red hair? Because, you know, the great-great-great-grandfather may have had red hair, so the gene for red hair was there, but it just didn't manifest itself until a certain point. Correct. Yeah, exactly that's really the same thing.
0: Exactly right.
1: There's all these possibilities for different appearances in human beings like color of eyes color of hair whether you're tall short fat thin Mm -hmm. that randomly express themselves through different generations but all of those genes are already there it's not something that's just suddenly appearing from out of nowhere correct if 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 you don't already have the gene to do that it's not going to happen in other words you're not going to have a kid born that's 30 feet tall
0: Right. Because he didn't... Unless there was already... A gene for that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, yep. you know, these these science fiction movies where, you know, it shows where, you know, 100 years from now, we're all going to have huge heads and big brains and all this kind of stuff. Right. It's like, if you don't have the gene for that, that will never happen.
0: Right. Now, another proof, besides the fruit fly experiments, scientists have done a lot of experiments with bacteria. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that in past shows but I thought I'd go into a little more in-depth uh, on this. The most famous experiment is done by uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Lensky from Michigan State University, where he and his colleagues have searched for evolution in biology for the past 20 years by growing Escherichia coli in flasks, tracking them for 40 to 50,000 generations. Okay, mm. Wow. So, and of course, bacteria, they also reproduce quickly, and so you can get... A they must
1: re- have a short lifespan, too, then, if they can get that many generations in 20 years.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting about bacteria. Some of them uh, basically live forever uh, because bacteria don't have telomeres that shorten, so they don't have a programmed death system really? like other organisms. Wow. So what they do is when they become damaged and need to be repaired. They simply duplicate themselves. But they'll also duplicate in other uh, environments where they're being well-fed, they'll duplicate, Mm -hmm. things like that. But unless they're attacked and and killed or poisoned, they essentially live forever. Wow, wow. That sounds
1: like a great monster movie, too.
0: Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And I had a good chance to hear about this directly from a biologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I went to hear one of his talks, and he spoke about these uh, experiments, and so you have—you know—this is these this forty to fifty thousand generations. This is equivalent to a million years worth of human uh, evolution. Okay. Wow. Forty to fifty thousand generations would be uh, uh, more than a million years. Right. Now, just think about that. Well, okay, in a million years, should we see, according to the evolutionary paradigm, should we see any changes? You should. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? Homo sapiens only goes back about 10,000 generations, okay? Wow. Yeah.
1: So that's not very long in uh, historical terms.
0: That's right. And Neanderthal man goes only back slightly further. Homo, what they call Heidelbergensis, goes only back 25,000. So you're you're getting back way, way back to the beginnings of uh, Homo erectus. Right. So, you know, the first standing up man. So you should see something happening. You should see some change. Uh, What happened? Actually, a little bit of improvement in the ability to digest food. Now, how do you think they did that? Did they add some kind of complex mechanism that allowed them to eat a new kind of food? No, in fact, they did it by breaking a gene, breaking the ribose sugar gene and throwing it out. That then made it more efficient for the bacteria to eat the food that they were being fed. Hmm. So the only way that, in all this time, the only way for the bacteria to progress was to progress by breaking the genes that were in it. So this, is a, this gave rise to this quote that I have from University of Bristol Emeritus Professor of Bacteriology Alan Linton. So here's his quote. But where is the experimental evidence? None exists in the literature claiming that one species has been shown to evolve into another. Bacteria, the simplest form of independent life, are ideal for this kind of study. With generation times of 20 to 30 minutes and populations achieved after 18 hours, But throughout 150 years of the science of bacteriology, there is no evidence that one species of bacteria has changed into another, in spite of the fact that populations have been exposed to potent chemical and physical uh, mutagens. There we go. And that uniquely bacteria possess extra-chromosomal transmissible plasmids—okay, so bacteria share genetic information between each other—since there is no evidence for species changes between the simplest forms of unicellular unicellular life, it is not surprising that there is no evidence for evolution from prokaryotic to eukaryotic cells, let alone throughout the whole array of higher multicellular organisms." Hmm. How do you like that quote?
1: Wow. When are we going to hear that on the nightly news? Yeah, probably not don't too— Don't hold your breath, right? Not
0: too <laughs> soon, I don't think. And that also, the, very interestingly, I heard a talk by Michael Behe. He was recently in England. He was at the Darwin House, and he debated Michael Rice, a, an evolutionist, uh, Christian evolutionist. But And he mentioned these experiments, but he also mentioned something interesting— And that is that, okay, people could argue, well, still, even though you're doing a long-term experiment like that, 20 years, and you've got all these generations, you still don't have a total large number of cells, okay? So you're not really reflecting the environment. You maybe got a trillion cells in all that time. 20 years, you grow a trillion uh, bacteria cells. But he pointed out that there's no matter is, how
1: many cells you, you work on, you can always say, Well, you didn't have enough. Well let's you should put have it, done ten
0: more. Let's put and it, it in a real life scenario. How about the malaria? In fifty years of fighting malaria, okay, now mm-hmm. in malaria they reproduce so uh, they reproduce quickly. You get a billion trillion of them per year. All right. Wow. Now they've been interacting in the environment for fifty years. We've been fighting them with antibiotics and other chemical means and medical means. What do you think has happened? Have they evolved? Have they improved? Have they built new protein machinery to defend themselves against our attacks with our antibiotics and things? I have a feeling you're going to tell me. Yeah, no, (laughs) they haven't. Two changes in a protein which damaged a pump, which allowed them to then survive. (laughs) So, again, the only kind of adaptation that we see, if they're not using the on-off switches and turning on genes that were Previously off, the only right. way to advance is by destroying some genetic information that you already have. So, but nowhere, yeah, nowhere do we see any creation of new uh, machines, new systems that help the organism to survive.
2: Hmm.
1: All right, it doesn't so that, make a very good case for evolution, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't. And yet, evolution is a fact.
0: I heard that. Yes, <laughs> yes, I heard that. Okay. All right. So let's look at uh, another study that looks about at the how changes in vertebrates are controlled. So there's this prevailing notion out there that all changes to animal features come as a result of random genetic mutations, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In contrast to that, In the year 2010, there were a lot of studies that demonstrated that feature alterations actually come from regulated patterns, okay? So it shows that animals were created with certain innate abilities to adapt to new environments. And you referred to that when you were talking about the finches, but there's more additional Mm -hmm. studies that have come out came out this last year about that. One was a genetic study that found that certain sections of dog DNA are commonly shuffled, okay? So this is just a natural process. There is mechanisms and a system which causes the DNA of certain parts of the dog DNA to shuffle. So these are things that you can well imagine have to do with typical breed traits. So things like ear shape, hair length, the demeanor of the dog. Hmm. In the meantime, the rest of the DNA remains stable. So there are deliberately, there are designed into DNA deliberate mechanisms to purposely cause variation. Hmm. And we've talked about in past shows how the ancestry of the dog has been traced all the way down to the wolf species, the Middle Eastern wolf species as the ancestor to all dog kinds. Mm-hmm. There was another study that showed similar uh, results in butterflies. Okay, Only one or two genes are used as elegant switches to turn on or off wing coloration patterns. So mm-hmm. you can have incredibly rapid change, wholesale color changes Occurring in just one generation because of this on off ability, turning on genetic information that was already there that mm-hmm. had been previously lying dormant. Then there was this interesting study that showed how genetic changes can be linked together. Okay, this was a study that showed that in hammerhead sharks, the flat head portion of a shark can a, there can be a genetic change that makes this uh, head portion longer okay? So in sharks that have this head portion longer, they also are equipped with smaller pectoral fins and vice versa. So these two the two changes
1: tend to come about at the same time. They when come they about and they're, they're connected.
0: And they're connected because it makes a difference. It determines whether the shark is better suited to straight-line cruising (laughs) with a smaller hammer or quick and sharp turning. Because its fin and foil combination never produce too much or too little overall lift while it's swimming through the ocean. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Sounds like an incredible design by somebody, doesn't it? Could it be? Could it be? (laughs) Well, we've got, let's see, well, about six minutes, I guess, left. So let's see if we can do some more of these studies. If we should also
1: mention, too, that there's quite a bit of scientific evidence, too, that shows that there are an inherent limits in species for change. That's well, That it- species can change, like you're describing here, up to a certain point but they can't go beyond that point, in other words, That's to become true. another animal.
0: That's true, and that was dramatically shown in those bacteria experiments, right. where the experiment lasted for 20 years, but the all the change occurred right away at the beginning. Right. When they were put into the flasks with the new type of food source, then the bacteria changed rapidly to consume that type of food source, and then nothing after it. Right. So you know, again, looking like it was a designed program change and, you know, nothing like what we would expect to see in the typical uh, mythology of evolution. But it didn't change into a different
1: kind of creature, not even a different kind of bacteria. That's right. It's still the same kind of bacteria. Correct. Because there's a limit beyond which that seems to be built into all living creatures. There's a, a limit as to where they cannot go beyond as far as changing.
0: That's right. It's a matter of how much information is in the genome that they share. So there can be more genetic information than in a single organism that's kind of out there in the pool, Right. but outside of that pool there isn't any other genetic information. Right, And so they are restricted to only what is possible, what can be built or what can be designed based on the genetic information that's there. There can be some is on and some is off. Like inside your body, there's DNA for some things that are not on for you. Like for
1: instance, I have – well, I used to have brown hair before it got a little gray, but – the gene for blonde hair is probably in me somewhere, but I just didn't manifest that one. Or red hair, or blue eyes, or whatever.
0: Right. Okay, so let's see if we've got time. Uh, We'll talk about this new interesting code. Did you hear about this called the splicing code? So it's not just that in DNA you've got this code, right? The genetic code is part of of really a functional language, right? The DNA mm. has all the features of communicated information, right? It's got symbols. It's got a grammar. It has meaning and purpose, just like a language or like isn't the English. And is language a product of
1: intelligence?
0: It could be. <laughs> and it's all contained in DNA, right? And it provides the information to build proteins. OK, but it takes more than just how to build proteins to create an organism. And this is something that we spoke to Dr. Stephen Meyer, who wrote the book Signature in the Cell. When if you want, if you're interested in this following up on this, you can listen to the podcast on that show. And he talked about how they scientists believe that the information for actually the architecture of the organism is contained in the egg cell. Okay? Mm-hmm. So so the DNA has the information, be like if you imagine it to a house, it'd be like how to build a handle to a door, how to build a window, mm-hmm. how to build a brick. It's mm-hmm. got, the DNA has all the information of how to build all those different pieces. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's not enough to build a house. You have to have a blueprint. So there's a blueprint somewhere in the egg that, and this is just being researched to to, see. Like how do
1: you know where to put the window or where to put the door handle or where to put the roof?
0: Right, or how many windows do you need? Right. Where's the information for that? Right. Okay, so researchers have long suspected that this first code, the DNA, is just one part of the process since it only specifies the production of proteins. Another code or many more codes... Must tell cells, for instance, when to start and stop production, as well as how fast to produce the needed materials. Mm-hmm. And like Dr. Myers said, the also the blueprint you got to know what you're building in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, this year, researchers were working and discovered they were able to put together the parts of an entirely different code, one that transmits information using the three-dimensional shapes of RNA molecules, okay? So not the component portions of it, but the actual three-dimensional shape of that molecule has a code, and it uses that in in conjunction with other components of the cell. And what happens is that some systems in the cell are activated by these, essentially, signals, these tiny signals, okay? So... Production could be switched on, production could be switched off or modulated, and this is called the splicing code. They've called this the splicing code, and they found it to be deeply complicated and involving many layers of communication. This so,
1: almost sounds like, when it, like, to use your example, when a builder's going to build a house, they'll often build a miniature model first uh-huh. and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. In full size, right. that's their guide. Exactly. So you're saying that's what this code is? Is that this is like a, a miniature blueprint of what it wants to build?
0: Well, no, it's not. Uh, it's not the blueprint. It's more of a controlling. In other words, the DNA tells what to build. Right. This splicing code tells when and how much okay. Okay, so it's, okay, build it now and build this much. So you don't end
1: up with three legs or four eyes or whatever.
0: That's exactly right. Okay. So you've got to control the DNA, and that's controlled by a new type of code that they've discovered last year called the splicing code. Well, we've got time to mention one more discovery, and that was about human mutation rate. And we've talked about this also on past shows. There's a real problem for evolution if every generation has mutations in them eventually essentially you're creating noise in the system so it's like a tape recording that you tape over and over again and it gets worse yeah. and worse and worse you lose For the a record original with scratches on it yes you keep playing it over and over it gets worse and worse and worse right so this study showed that that um, by base by base analysis every new generation human generation has 60 new irrevocable mutations that add up every generation. Wow. So, uh, and and one per generation is enough to cause eventual demise of the species, Mm. so. Well, we hope you enjoyed this discussion of some of the new scientific evidence that's coming out that helps to support the Christian worldview. If you do, keep listening to us every week, Sundays at 4 p.m. or listening to the podcasts on evidenceforfaith.com and always remember that the best reason for becoming a Christian is because it's true